Hi, and welcome to And Introducing a Podcast About Words, About Music. I'm Chris Wade. I'm Molly O'Brien. And introducing singer, songwriter, composer, multi-instrumentalist, band leader, and all-around legend, it's Mr. Frank Zappa. One of the S-tier weirdos of rock and roll, Zappa mixed genres from classical modernism to doo-wop with an acerbic sense of humor to create a vast discography of rock weirdness, all while becoming one of the most outspoken musicians for free speech and against censorship. And today we'll be learning all about his life, his works, and whether or not that's a real poncho, I mean, is that a Mexican poncho or a Sears poncho, through his autobiography, The Real Frank Zappa Book. But first, let's introduce our own guest. She's a Toronto-based pianist and composer. It's Robin Hatch. Hey, Robin, how's it going? Good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for being here. Virtually and digitally. I will start by saying how this came about. Uh, We we followed each other through our various cross-Canadian music uh, attendant friends like uh, Josiah from uh, 155 Pod and Dan Beckner. Um, and then the other day, I saw you post a few of your audition tapes to join the Dweezil Zappa band. Am I, is that, am I understanding what those videos were correctly? Yeah. Um, so last, um, January, January, 2020, um, I was going down to LA for the NAM show with this microtonal synthesizer. Um, <laughs> and the night before I left, saw an audition notice for Dweezil Zappa hiring a keyboard player, um, which is, I'm sure, as we'll talk about in the episode, sort of the musician's dream. Um, so <laughs> I basically had to tell the people I was at this trade show with, like, I'm not coming. Um, I will be staying in the Airbnb and like I need to practice for this audition, basically, um, which was filming videos of six different Zappa songs, like really tricky Zappa songs and transcribing them. Um, and then... On the final day of my trip, I met up um, with Dweezil and his wife, who's his tour manager, for coffee um, and discussed kind of... um, So last summer, King Crimson was reforming, and I think they were sniping a bunch of the Dweezil Zappa band (laughs) people. Um, So they were looking for a keyboardist for a European tour opening for Deep Purple, which would have been last July. And so sick. Um, yes. Oh, man. We all went down to Montreux to see Zappa and the Mothers. Isn't that how the song goes? Yeah. That's smoke, that smoke on the water. <laughs> it was um, the day before I was supposed to go see them play um, Dweezil Zappa's band in Montreal. The lockdown happened. So, uh, <laughs> but, well, you know, that, you, you never know. The yeah. things that the last year took from us, yes. man. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that is a tragedy because I'm sure playing Zappa with Dweezil uh, would be a joy. And also maybe a chore. Uh, so as you said, some of those songs are quite uh, a workout. Totally. Uh, and he's notorious for like, he'll go on YouTube videos of people playing Zappa covers and in the comments, tear them up and say like, rocks. you made this mistake and that that'll be the whole comment. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so even just him saying, you know, this was you've passed was awesome. <laughs> yeah, that is very cool. Uh, I, I would be mortified to have a Dweezil Zappa show up in my comments saying, uh, actually, that's a D flat above the high B. God. <laughs> <laughs> um, Pretty funny, though. So we usually we start this with going around and talking about uh, our own experiences with Zappa before we get into the book. I, I mean, I guess we can start with you, Robin. You're obviously a, a, a proficient admirer of his works. How did uh, how did you get into uh, the world of Frank? Um, my college roommate was very into uh, Zappa and 
I was into Steely Dan, so she showed me the classic albums episode of Asia, um, and that led to watching the Apostrophe episode and Overnight Sensation. And um, I guess from there, I got into the Apostrophe album pretty heavily and then uh, got the real Frank Zappa book just for personal entertainment uh, probably about a year after, so like eight years ago or something. And... uh, yeah, I've always respected his ethos, um, having played in cover bands and then tried to transition to solo music and, you know, playing in other people's rock bands. It's always been, uh, I don't know. I return to Frank Zappa as like a grounding technique, I guess. I love that. Yeah. He, he's <laughs> the the book a- is a very like, not maybe not sacred text, maybe a profane text, <laughs> but like it is a very, it's less a memoir than it is kind of like a, like a, explanation of like how to live and make stuff yeah yeah totally um he's really salty and bitter which is funny and good (laughs) yes but you could even knowing him like casually i'd say i know more than casually i can get in that into a second but but he is such like a strong will uh that you can tell through like watching like reading anything he's written or hearing him talk about music or even just watching him play that I feel like he is a good person to come back to as as like a grounding or guiding guiding force. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go next because I can actually piggyback off that. My college roommate uh, <laughs> nice. Taylor Deer. I don't know if Taylor listens to this podcast. Uh, was really into Zap Up, uh, and we both worked together on the oft mentioned WNUR uh, Northwestern's own radio station, Chicago Sound Experiment, where he eventually took over a long running format they had there—a one hour show that plays once a week called the Frank and Don Show plays exclusively uh, Frank Zappa and Captain Beefheart tracks, and they both have deep enough catalogs that you can program an hour weekly show from that for 20 years uh, without too much overlap. <laughs> Did he take over from some, like, crusty, like, dude who had been, like, chilling there for a while and was like, finally, I have to give this up? Uh, basically, the weirdest nerd senior hands that show off uh. to the weirdest nerd sophomore every three years. <laughs> uh, I don't know if it still existed, but that's how it had gone for for years and years at that at the show um is that is that your ver- well you had you had fraternities i suppose but i feel like that's a sort of a musical fraternity the 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 rock show at uh wnur was a kind of fraternity of its own yeah um or like a secret society but I, we were always hanging out at the radio station doing various things so i would go hang out with him doing that show and that's kind of how i got like uh frank pilled as it was <laughs> as it were um and you know, I've never been like a, a a Zappa obsessive, but definitely like getting to sort through all of his material through his eyes gave me a deep appreciation. I, I would say that my um, favorite stuff is still like his more poppy things, like uh, all the stuff on, uh, you know, like Camarillo Brillo and, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Don't eat the yellow snow. But I still have a, a, I would say an appreciation for the breadth of his compositional powers. Because he does a little bit of everything. Yes. Um, I got into Frank Zappa because of my dad. My dad uh-huh. would play Frank Zappa like in the car or like he definitely had. I'm not I'm not sure if I could identify the actual albums or if he had some sort of compilation or something. But uh, 
uh, I I grew up listening to Frank Zappa, and in the same way that I associate certain um, Beatles songs and certain like Emerson, Lake, and Palmer songs as like music for children, even though especially with Frank Zappa, I don't think this music is made for children. And in <laughs> fact, he said in his like testimony in Congress that he does not make music for children. <laughs> but like songs like um, Montana. <laughs> Which I was listening to that song today. Maybe we, maybe we can listen to it later. Uh, now that I've listened to a wider breadth of Frank Zappa, I'm like, what is the metaphor for the dental floss farm <laughs> in Montana? Or is he literally, did he literally just make that shit up? Or is it like a weird sex thing? Yeah, I don't think that it's for <laughs> children, but it still can be very childlike. I feel like that is a... Uh a, a line that he walks the, on a lot. The way he delivers the like me and the just me and the pygmy pony. I like remember listening to that as a kid and be like, this is like funny as shit. Just his inflection and like the crazy instrumentation. And he he writes in the book too of just like making like comedy music in a way. Like even if it's not, he's like sometimes like the tones that we use or like the textures are literally just to be funny and to like remind people of like cartoons or stuff. Anyway, so that's I listened to it a bunch when I was a kid. Kind of fell off. Got back into it for this book but then I was also definitely aware of him as like weirdly a public intellectual in the sense that he was like, a foremost voice on the idea of like censorship um obscenity and and music yeah so, yeah Robin do you do you find you identify more with the um the like whimsy of Zappa or the like <laughs> soaring musicianship or do you find those two things inseparable um I find that the the whimsy is it, it makes me cringe most of the time. It's what I, I wish wasn't there sometimes, but it's also the best element of Zappa because he doesn't care in that. I don't know. There's a quote in the book that's like, if you think it is bitchin', then it is or something like that. Um, yes. And just making music for yourself and not caring about um, what anybody else thinks. Uh, so I, I respect that. Um, but yeah, there's not a lot of seven, eight kind of rhapsodies out there. So it's cool that Zappa was a mainstream classic rock musician really doing something different from any other prog rock band because he wasn't singing about space and I don't know, whatever Pink Floyd yeah. was singing about kind of or like Or like weird Tolkien Arth stuff. Or Arthurian like, yeah. legend or whatever. Uh, yeah, it was really mundane kind of, his lyrics are pastoral for America in a way that, uh, I don't know, you could draw the parallel between his lyrics and like, 1990s grunge music maybe but the way he delivers it is insane <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes <laughs> pastoral for 19th century america i like that because it is very like greasy in the sense that like a diner is greasy or something or you know there's an album called joe's garage it's like yeah it's like prog rock for for the car mechanic set <laughs> big time should we get into the book a little bit yeah let's do it um this book as i had previously said it's definitely not it's not your typical rock memoir it's it's i would say almost like didactic in its uh approach to like how to think about like music the government <laughs> life in general parenting he has like parenting tips at the end uh but he he also there's some biographical stuff so i figured we could maybe do like biography biography first and then do like music yeah let's let's whip through the life of zappa okay so he he does 
talk about one of our favorite things to talk about on the pod is when people open their books in media res. Uh, he opens it basically by trying to explain about a rumor that he once ate human feces on stage. And he goes, uh, I did not do that. The closest I ever came to eating shit anywhere was at a Holiday Inn buffet in Fay- <laughs> Fayetteville, North Carolina in 1973. Start off with a solid joke. Um, Frank Vincent Zappa, not Francis. He was a born Frank, which is a, a unique thing, especially for when he was born. And he, he said he had like kind of an existential crisis about it because he, he thought he thought he was Francis and then looked at his birth certificate way later in life. He's like, I was Frank the whole time. I feel like that is a seeding for his eventual children, his own children's name. Yeah, that's like the one and his kids names are the two. Right. What's in a name? Um, he was born on uh, December 21st, 1940 uh, to extremely like second gen Italian parents. Um, I think like Sicilian mother, uh, Naples dad, Neapolitan dad. Um, And his father was a meteorologist during World War II and used to make, uh, because if you're blowing up the mustard gas, you got to know which way the wind is blowing. True. Ayo. Uh, And then he used to make extra cash after the war by volunteering for human testing of chemical warfare agents. (laughs) All of these sound like titles of Frank Zappa songs. If, I mean, you, if you want to blow up the mustard gas, you got to know where the wind blows. That's true. <laughs> um, Frank himself is very uh, like scientific in the sense that he's very interested in making homemade explosives. There's a chapter called um, How I Almost Blew My Nuts Off. Uh, then he so like but he's never really interested in class per se in school, but he's interested in music. He starts with drums. He eventually starts playing guitar. Um, he's interested in really offbeat and avant-garde music as a kid. He somehow gets his hands... Oh, he reads an article that describes uh, the composer Edgard Varese's ionization, which he uh, he says the, the article is, uh, this album is dissonant and terrible, the worst music in the world. And he, in response, goes, ah, yes, that's for me. <laughs> uh r- Robin, I've I've seen your music described as having as being classical modernist. Do, did you follow Frank down to these influences? Do you know a lot of these uh, I think guys? I know enough about Varez to understand what he's talking about. Um, but I was trained classically, so I know sort of the Eastern European, like late nineteenth century tradition that he's drawing from, um, and it it's a lot of music that was transcribed from kind of strange traditional music of certain villages that um, that's where Bella Bartok would write from. I know that um, I listened to Varese's Amériques in advance of this um, recording and it, it was written at the same time as Rhapsody in Blue. And I think the topic is the same, like it's meant to evoke a, the streets of New York or something like that. But um, Varese's version is, there's no structure. There's no like repeating catchy melodies. It just sort of uh, is atonal. And uh, I think it, yeah, I think it's more interesting than writing like a, a pop song, um, but it's definitely not the most like fiscally responsible way to compose music. <laughs> <laughs> if you really Fra- want to make some money, and it's got to go verse, chorus, very chorus, attractive. Chorus. 
Uh, I love that. Um, yeah. <laughs> What's amazing is that m maybe some people would just find that music and say, that's that. Frank Zappa actually uh, looked up Verez's phone number in the New York City phone book, found him and gave him a call and was like, so what are you working on next? That's so the awesome. ingenuity. Yeah. Isn't that cool? Like it kind of made me see again, instructive this book. Like I hope people would read this and be like, I don't have to just like look at this guy and be like, I like his music and call it a day. Like you can get in touch. See, see what makes them tick. <laughs> That's uh, basically how I got the job producing Chavo. There you go. It's Wait, true. You I never know said... who's going to write back. <laughs> you never know. I, where was he? Where did he grow up? He was born in Baltimore. Baltimore. He moved to uh, California as a, a, a younger child. He was sick a lot when he was a kid. He's always getting like sinus uh, infections and stuff. One of those sickly children. Um, he and he ends up in Cucamonga, California, which I actually did not look up where in California that is in the it's deserty. He's at, like Mojave, oh. I think. Um, anyway, in high school, he meets uh, Don Van Vliet, who eventually uh, records as Captain Beefheart. I don't know anything about Captain Beefheart. That is a huge uh, uh, blank area for me historically. But they work together apparently on eventually Trout Mask Replica, replica which I'm familiar with the album cover of that. <laughs> uh, Robin, are you a, a, a Captain Beefheart fan? I I like Captain Beefheart. I'm not a hardcore fan, but I of the music I know, I really like it. He's kind of, if Zappa didn't have the theoretical musical knowledge um, and a cooler demeanor. <laughs> yeah, he's got, uh, Beefheart seems like the outsider artist version of Zappa. It's like somebody who who didn't have yeah like the the scientific mind for these things but they had all the same impulses the rock and roll spirit and also perhaps. has a, a more of a like a tom waitsy vibe mm, mm. like mm -hmm. a, a, a mysterious bluesman from out of time a squid eating dough in a polyethylene bag is fast and bulbous got me Seriously, I, I, I said once or recently that I feel like uh, in, in a fan email or a listener email, not a fan email, but uh, I said that uh, he seems like he's been in a time machine and he came from like the 1800s and he's just trying to make it work. <laughs> about Captain Beefheart? Oh, no, about uh, about Tom Waits. Oh, about Tom, Tom Waits. That's his vibe to me. Um, Frank, also, he's, he's simultaneously, he's in like a, a mid- it's like the mid fifties at this point. He's in an R and B band playing drums, which like like pretty regular music. But then he's also composing his own music. He eventually uh, scores the film of one of his high school teachers, which he calls like a cheap cow, a really cheap cowboy movie. So he's like he's doing stuff like from a pretty early age, and he seems like kind of self taught. It seems, or at least that's how he puts it, maybe in the book. He's he is becoming a, a 50s music polyglot by, by playing in, you know, composing, doing film soundtracks, being in pop bands. Yeah. Trying to do everything. He's got a lot of fingers in different in different pies. Uh, he ends up in uh, an R&B band called The Blackouts, uh, named, band name. named for one of the band members, uh, Peppermint Schnapps related blackout. <laughs> um, and he says that we were the only R&B band in the entire Mojave Desert at that time. <laughs> um, and then he's also getting involved with a like a recording studio in Cucamonga, which he eventually like takes over and names Studio Z. 
And uh, this is a play. And so he's also learning how to record, like learning engineering techniques, um, experimenting with that stuff. And then he has his first real run in with the law, which is kind of a theme in this book and his life, which is, do you know this story, Chris? I don't think I do. He it's in 1962. And he says, uh, my hair was short then, but the local folks thought I had long hair. <laughs> um, he he's starting to make a movie with Captain Beefheart, um, like a like a real DIY situation. And the town vice squad gets wind of him. And they basically think that he is making porno pornographic films in his little like film studio. And they entrap him. They have a, a undercover vice guy offer Frank $100 to make a porn movie. And he, do he does it. But he says there was no actual sex. Like they faked the entire thing. And then even though when he comes with the tape to hand it over and get the cash, the exchange isn't made, but they arrest him anyway. And he's arrested for a uh, conspiracy to commit pornography. <laughs> wow. Isn't that crazy? Conspira no actual pornography was committed, but he conspired to do pornography. And he, you know, he's gives a little details of just like the legal process and all the stuff that they're trying to trick him. He ends up going to jail for 10 days. And he says, um, uh, that gave me a real good whiff of California law. I haven't seen anything since then to change my opinion of how poorly the system works. Uh, that sounds very formative for him in his later views, knowing how much that he was uh, became a free speech guy. Right. Uh, I just the the fact that like Frank's in town, like making you know doing creative stuff, and like the cops are just like this guy is a freak, and we're going to bring him down. Uh, I wanted to back up just a second to just talk about that his like spread of activities mm -hmm. related to music in Cucamonga, because I was wondering, Robin, if you related to all that, because I imagine. Uh, you please feel free to tell me if I'm wrong that a uh, musician in, in your position is might also feel like the need to or or the drive to kind of approach all these things. I'm sure somebody has has asked you to to do uh, like scores and stuff like that and and not only needing to be a good musician but also needing to be able to like record and produce your own material, uh, things like that. Yeah, I think that it's uh, it's more difficult for women still to do to be offered uh composing jobs and uh arrangement gigs but it is fairly common like when i started i took english at university but then i started playing at second city um like the comedy center doing kind of whose line is it anyway underscoring stuff um so yeah i think you're never encouraged to be a jack of all trades but it doesn't hurt um and playing in cover bands is like the best way to make money which i think zappa talks about as well but it's you know, I could relate to his bitterness at towards popular music. The the more you play the same covers over and over. Um, <laughs> yeah. It, it doesn't make you fonder of the songs. It just shows you all the ways that they're stupid. Yeah. It, it gets old playing. You got it by Roy Orbison at a wedding <laughs> 80 times a year. <laughs> you, you've done the, the wedding cover circuit. Big time. It, uh, okay. I miss it now, now that it, I can't ever do it. I think about it all the time, but. Yeah, at the time I hated it. It is wild that like years have gone by and the basic idea of like musicianship now is like, do I stay in the cover band or like related world and make a solid but not super exciting living 
or do I like write my own material and go out there? Because like Frank Zappa very much was like he said at one point he was talking about like the mothers of invention used to play like a go-go bar. And he was like, yeah, we just, you know, you grind out the same like covers a zillion times while like girls in infringed outfits do the twist as if as if that were like the, <laughs> the expression of like the beer drinkers aesthetic. I think he said something like that. I mean, the the wedding band thing is always very interesting to me because it, it's not only a performance we don't have to tangent too much about this, but it's not only a performance of the song, but you also have to like accommodate and perform to like the performance of the joy of the day. So it's not just like doing the cover, but it's also like you have to be the perfect accessory to, uh, you know, the, this bride and groom's like whole situation. And I assume that there are like different kinds of levels of formality they might make you assume and like different kinds of seriousness based on the uh, set list. Yeah. Like there's nothing more humiliating than, um, playing Hey Ya at like as a band of white people and like having to smile during the shake it like a Polaroid picture part. (laughs) You're taking me back to some weddings we've been to big Uh, time. I just, again, not to tangent this too long, but I just will always remember a wedding that we were at where uh, it was like fairly elaborate, like a huge stage. They had like, well, how many people were in Jen and Lucas's band? Like 20? It was not, like a not 20, but yeah, like it was over like a 10. Huge cover band, like full horn section, full backup singers, like real professional, like top of the line. And it's like, they do like a mini set before the dinner and then they did the big set afterwards. And like, as soon as they start playing, uh, the curtain opens up and like lights on them and the guy the charismatic guy comes out to the front and just it's like who's ready to get it started and they start playing get it started the black eyed peas get it started and the i standing next to the <laughs> groom and he just turns to me sourly and goes i told them to cross out all the black eyed peas <laughs> uh but the thing is, they got it started. They got it started. They and know just, better than you what gets it started. And yeah, thinking about that my groom friend uh uh you know shelling out for like the LA one of the LA area's finest wedding cover bands and then and still get having to listen to black eyed peas even though he didn't want to terrible <laughs> terrible stuff um for for Frank and his crew he he moves to LA and he started the the mothers which have to change their name to the mothers of invention because uh just plain mothers I- implies motherfuckers mm-hmm. again with a again with a censorship uh, they record Freak Out for MGM. Um, they're like so broke that they're like starving while they're recording the album and like a record executive <laughs> lends them $10 for lunch, um, which the guy, <laughs> he says that the record executive is like known for being stingy because if he gave money to every band, he would be, he would be broke. <laughs> and so he like dropped a $10 bill on the ground and like kind of nodded toward it for Frank to pick up so they could like get lunch wow. at a drive through uh tough stuff should we listen to something from freak out yeah let's listen to freak uh, freak out robin do you have a favorite track off freak out oh no it's up to you i don't uh i don't know this the album super well uh let's go with uh the classic wowie zowie great Your 
year is this? Uh, this would be uh, like early 60. 64, 65. I think for me, one of the things that always sticks out, uh, even in a song like this that I feel like for Zappa is like a cleaner, simpler song, is just how busy all of his compositions are. Like there's always so much stuff going on. Like in this yep. one, it's the, uh, the the xylophone just going crazy in the back, even though it's just this like simple three or four chord song. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy how it um, the texture of it makes it seem like there's not that much going on, but it is so complicated. <laughs> uh, yeah, and playing. like the, even though those like even like the the duop parts that are like somewhat simple, each of them has like you know four harmonies in them. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that that kind of tune kind of uh, it, it exemplifies what he kept doing, which is like the lyrics are maybe not quite expected in terms of what is usually happening for pop music, but you kind of like deliver them with such a straight face in, at some points that people can't maybe tell. Like, if you just had that playing on the in the background, you'd just be like, oh, yeah, I don't know. It's fine or whatever. That's like, I don't care if you brush your teeth. Yeah. It's not a normal thing to tell a woman. <laughs> I think. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. Some people are yeah, living different. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I just... The line of, like, whether a music is, like, a, quote, comedy song or not, because I feel like things that are intentionally comedic music you know like I don't know Weird Al or something are then like siloed off from any kind of uh, from being like real music and mm-hmm. I think that that is one of the things that he most successfully does is being music that is intentionally funny and often itself a joke while still <laughs> being so musical and competent in, it, in its exceeding competence in, it, in its construction that it is still like serious music Yep. Yep. I mean, it's hard to take it. It's hard to get people to take you seriously when you're also being funny. It's true. true. And maybe, I mean, Steely Dan's the other example I can think of where if other people try to sound like them, it's very difficult. And it it's a testament to how good Frank was at what he was doing, I guess, that that does sound like such a like a doo-wop song when you hear it, even though it's technically not, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Um, he also is experiencing at this time some early uh, record executive and record company fuckery. Um, he discovers like a, uh, a thing that record companies do in order to, you know, like boost their numbers, which is overpress records and then charge the band for the unsold <laughs> records. And they just like send them out to nowhere. Like he eventually ends up suing, I think CBS and Warner for this in the eighties. It's, it's funny that we've been doing this show for like five years now or something like that. And, and still like ev- basically every other episode we, fu- we hear like a novel way that record companies fuck with uh, uh, artists. Yeah. Cause I don't think anybody else has ever complained about the overpressing thing before. Yeah. And I, I think he is like extra paying attention to stuff probably because he knows that like the law and the business world is not designed to protect him, <laughs> but perhaps the person wearing the suit in the studio. He also uh, notices that uh, for example, his song, let's make the water turn black had a reference <laughs> to a waitress's pad 
aka notepad completely excised from the final cut and when he tried to find out why he said that there was an MGM executive who was convinced that it referred to a sanitary napkin and he became obsessed with the idea that a waitress somewhere was feeding sanitary napkins to people in a restaurant and he demanded that the reference be removed that guy needs to see a doctor <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> Which, like, oh, God. Can you imagine you record a song and then, like, you put it out and, like, a verse is missing? And you're like, no. that, that's my that's my song. It's also, I mean, as Zappa points out, that the, the censors are the real sickos. That, yeah, right. Why are you so mm-hmm. obsessed? Like, what, what is going on in your brain? That Sometimes you're, a pad is just a pad. It's just a notepad. Just taking people's orders. Chill. Totally. Um, he meets, he technically, this is, uh, he got married when he was 20 uh, to someone he met at his single semester in community college. And then they called it off eventually. But he met his second wife uh, and his wife till the end, Gail. Um, he marries her in 1967 when she's uh, nine months pregnant. They moved to New York City. Um, and this would be in like 1960, yeah, 67, 68. They get a contract, the mothers do, get a contract to play the Garrick Theater on Bleecker Street. Do all his guys come with him? Are like, are they his guys or does he find a, form a new band everywhere that he goes? I think they're mostly his guys. He, I know that he does not concern himself with um, constant shuffling in and out of band members, which I really appreciate since that's something that drives me crazy. <laughs> I, or at least in the writing. At least in the writing. Uh, I, I know like when towards the end in like the 70s and 80s he had like a few guys like the drummer that he had uh that played the devil in uh titties and beer my favorite zappa song uh was with him a lot but, yeah yeah uh, i think he i think he seemed seemingly brought the mothers from la to new york i mean you you mentioned this at the very beginning robin but it is funny to think of like the current prog rock stable of of guys and i'm including you in guys uh, who might who might be able to do this this stuff because it's like especially given the the audience for that kind of music now I I have to assume that that it's a fairly small and interconnected circle of people who would who like play together in those groups yeah do you know like there's a yeah. you find the scenes in each town and it's like there's overlap with people that might go to fish concerts or like um i don't know <laughs> respect for jam bands i find and respect for prog rock or um, mutually exclusive um but the yeah like in L- la there's once in future band there's there's people who are doing prog still i think effectively <laughs> um but it's yeah it's closer in nature to like the gentle giant side of things where it's sort of more romantic lyrically um versus frank which is more like i don't know brutal somehow <laughs> yes. well it's i mean it is funny that the funny and maybe telling that the only person who's really doing like frank like stuff right now is like literally his son yeah yeah I'm yeah it's a real like hamlet situation <laughs> <laughs> he's he's started the the zappa and son uh, uh bi- small business yes. of, of vulgar vulgar of, rock of, of vulgar prog rude rude prog <laughs> he is the rude prog prog boy um well i the thing i loved about this section when he's in new york at the garrick is that um it was like the late 60s, like obviously in New York, L.A., San Francisco. There's lots of like happenings with like hippies. Like we talked about Debbie Harry's book uh, because she was there for that, too. And Frank 
And the mothers, like as the sort of house band for the Garrick, they're doing, you know, they play a bunch of random like improvisational stuff. They're working on crazy compositions. But he says one night they had only three people attend the show. So they created customized personal entertainment, including grabbing bunches of little snacks from the nearby cafe and serving them with towels over our arms like waiters <laughs> <laughs> before like just talking with the audience as opposed to playing music. And the reason I bring this up is because like, I think there's an idea that this could be like a really like pretentious, like theatrical moment. But he just said like he doesn't have that attitude about it. Like he's just kind of like, yeah, just what we did. Like it was just like to stay interested and like do something kind of crazy. Like he he didn't seem to think of it as like this movement that's going to like change the world. You know what I mean? Totally. Like especially with how seriously New York art would have been taking itself at the time, like with, I don't know, theater and Andy Warhol and so on like it right it's funny that he didn't give a shit yeah it's just like a thing <laughs> I wonder if he and the Velvet Underground folks ever uh cross paths because I feel like that would be a uh, uh same ends of magnets that 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 have may- maybe similar impulses but wouldn't get along at all yeah also he he would have be in New York around the same time that uh, uh Rick James would have been uh taking the greyhound from from Buffalo to check out the jazz clubs they could walk by each other on the on bleecker street have you have you spent uh much time Robin watching uh like live zap em stuff um just for this audition and then f- um there's a good cosmic debris video that's like ten a ten minute version where he does like a seven minute solo that's Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's the best solo, but it's interesting. <laughs> I've I've mostly watched the Zappa live in New York material, but uh, for how um, ornate and structured some of that material is, there's also a lot of room for playfulness and impro- improvisation. And you know that's what I take from that last segment of being like, no matter how much how precise we need to be with the music, that we don't need to be precise with the act. Like we can be fun and casual or intimate. Um, I'm going to keep bringing it up until we get a chance to play it. But again, in that like 10 minute version of titties for beer, which ends up it being this like long dialogue between him and the drummer and my favorite version of it, the Zappa live in New York, there's a great moment where he just in the middle of this set, a song reaches over and says, wait a minute now somebody's handing me a note. Uh, and then like reads a note that says, Hey, hey Frank, I lost my pal. If you could give a shout out to bear and or beans, <laughs> From Frank MC, that would be great. And just like reads a note from the audience in the middle of the, the song. I'm yeah. only interested in a couple of things. Wait, is that a note for me? Somebody passing me a note? What does this say? Frank, please do me a favor. I can't find a brother of mine. I could dig it if you could call him from stage. His name is Dirty Tom Nomads MC. Signed, thanks. Bear or Bean? I can't tell. Well, if he's out there... Dirty Tony De La Nomads MC, get in touch with Bean or Bear. And as I was saying, Devil. And that's like a decade later. That's in like 77 or something. So that's where the vibe came from of like, and he says too near the end of the book talking about like his, his style of like playing live and what he needs. And he says like basically literally the most important thing is like making sure everyone is rehearsed enough for the basic stuff Mm -hmm. that he can feel like comfortable kind of almost turning his mind off or just like improvising freely without like being like, Oh, who's going to fuck up that part, which I found interesting because I think that's a, it's a good way to be. (laughs) You have to be very strict. So then you can go crazy. He probably saw his, his music as like, 
above the crazy jazz scene that was happening at the same time um, because his structures mm-hmm. are so complicated. It's like, um, but I think it's essentially the same thing where technically you have to be so skilled in order to off the cuff um, improvise on top of what the chords are that he's offering. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and just trust everyone around you that you you can go off and do whatever while everybody else is going to be like right there uh, mm-hmm. for you, the platform for you to, to build off. Um, the mothers go to Europe. They disband, they reband, they go to Europe. They have a disastrous <laughs> tour. Um, there is a fire in one performance venue. I think it's a casino. In that, Montreux. Uh, yes. The smoke on the water song that I was representing. That's that, that is the smoke on the water is the fire in the casino at the mother's show. Well, uh, it burned all their equipment, <laughs> some, of, some of which was very obscure, <laughs> and they could not just go into a music store in Austria or whatever and uh, pick up some new stuff. So that happened, and then it ended in England with uh, Frank getting attacked on stage by a fan. He punched him in the face, and he fell down and into the orchestra pit and like broke all his shit. So that's cool. Do we know what the reason of the attack was? The fan said two things to the press. He said, uh, Frank Zappa was making eyes at my girlfriend, which <laughs> Frank was like, I, when the spotlight is on me, when I'm playing shows, like I can't see anything. When I look into the audience, it literally looks like a black hole. And then uh, the other thing that the guy said to the press was that uh, he didn't feel like he was g- getting his money's worth uh, with his ticket price. Awesome. Either way, sounds like he didn't really know what he was signing up for in that in that show. Uh, and he spent he spent a year a year in jail for that and Frank's, for assaulting Frank Zappa. Yeah, which you know, I mean, that's that's something. But Frank was like, the British press found the whole incident amusing, which I'm <laughs> sure he has a great relationship with with journalists and journalism. I feel I feel like Zappa is something that would have been much bigger in Europe at the time than than America. I, I don't know. I feel like that, that that would be prime for like European prop- popularity. Europeans often do get things that Americans uh, <laughs> don't don't quite grasp, I right. will say. Yeah. Um, the other thing that happens due to that attack is that he injures his larynx and when it heals, his voice drops a third of an octave, <laughs> which is so crazy. He says, having a, a low voice is nice, but I would have preferred some other means of acquiring it. I can't, I can't imagine. That's wild. His oh. voice is so iconic and specific mm-hmm. uh i now i want to go through and listen to the recorded music and see if you can hear when it happens yeah yeah that's crazy especially i mean that must also be tough because i'm assuming given the specificity of the rest of his music that most of his early parts were written specifically for a voice that was not a third of an octave lower right he has to transpose everything <laughs> god um he also speaking of struggles with a uh, uh British people in the law he this is where he starts getting into like the bureaucratic part of the book where he's really into talking about like oh like unions and um uh what what else just um contract law uh, obscenity law so like he had this whole thing where he was going to play with like the royal uh oh god I, I don't want to get this wrong 
um, Royal Philharmonic Orchestra in in England, and they canceled the gig because one of the venue people thought that his lyrics were obscene. And because the gig got canceled, he then still owed an, an insane amount of union fees, even though no gig transpired. And then so he sued the Crown for uh, damages and then had this whole obscenity trial based on whether or not his lyrics were obscene or not. And I just want to read, uh, he prints some uh, testimony that I thought was kind of amazing. Uh, This is specifically about his song, Lonesome Cowboy Burt, which maybe we can listen to after. Um, He's questioned, on page 22, I would be grateful if you would tell us what this phrase means. And I will buy you a taste and you can sit on my face. Uh, Frank responds, I will buy you a taste is a reference to purchasing an alcoholic beverage on behalf of the waitress and sitting on his face is a reference to the girl sitting on his face. Uh, He's questioned that being a sensual reference. Frank says, not necessarily. It could indicate a piggyback ride in an unusual position. (laughs) (laughs) He's questioned. Are you being serious? He says, certainly. Uh, the questioner oh. says, I will buy you an alcoholic drink and you can have a pack, pick-a-back ride sitting on my face. And Frank responds, that's not what it says. <laughs> <laughs> he, do, he has like five pages of just like legal trickery where he's basically skirting the idea of like, well, is it obscene? Like, what is it? What do you think is obscene, sir? Anyway, uh, I, lo- I love that. And I love him uh, trying to fuck with it. I mean, suing the crown. What a what a boss. What a boss. <laughs> He did that. Did he win? No. Uh, he did not win. They basically <laughs> determined that they, even though the lyrics were not obscene, like he had made enough of a nuisance of himself that like he did not get any damages is what I understand. <sighs> uh, maybe we're getting ahead, a little ahead here, but you know, this is where one of the aspects of Zappa that, that must be rested with comes up, which is, is like, though he is... Um, as we just said, a king for suing the crown to, uh, uh, of course, of course. to uh, for the right to sing about sitting on faces in a royal property. Uh, he also ends up having this like weird bent of conservatism yes. to him that uh, you know takes takes the form of kind of anti unionism and stuff like that. And um, you know, uh, Robin, while I was you know looking up some of what uh, you know whether or not you had seen the book or talked about Zappa before, I just saw one of your. Uh, you talking about the Zappa book on Twitter and somebody saying, yeah, but he's conservative. sucks. And you just responding. I, I don't know. Zappa's woke. Uh, <laughs> what do you feel about his takes on all this? Oh man. When did I say that? Like a long <laughs> time ago. Yeah. Um, I mean, you could probably make the argument that he's like, uh, pro individual or something like that, that, um, he ultimately just is, working for the benefit of himself at the end of the day. Um, and I think for the most part, I respect his political, I don't know. I didn't go back too much into his political beliefs. I feel like I'm on the spot for this question. Well, yeah, I, didn't I didn't mean to put you on the spot. I just, I think it is like one of those things that like, it's it's often hard to parse this kind of, of person's attitude because they're like political uh, uh attitudes are so deeply informed by like very specific circumstances of like, literally his individual circumstances, literal, yeah. literally individual circumstances. My other theory is that a lot of his thoughts and takes come in kind of opposition to hippiness and hippie uh, movement, which is something that he like from a very early time is, is keen to lampoon even the name freak out, right. you know, from the first album. And I think that, 
my sense of what I've seen from a lot of him is that him being fairly serious about what he does and then kind of looking around and seeing the rest of kind of his generation and what they were getting up to and being like, this is not serious. Like, clearly this is not going to work out for these people. Uh, and so, mm, yeah, he had no illusions about the sixties. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He, he knew ex- honestly, like he, yeah, he seemed to almost predict what, what kinds of attitudes would develop after the, yeah, the, the hippie veil had fallen. Cause I'm, cause I know he, he was very specifically not like a, a Reagan conservative guy. No. So he kind of avoided falling into the, the, the pratfalls of the, the, uh, non, committed idealist hippie who then became a Reaganot by preemptively becoming cons- slightly conservative in like a free business hippie or a free enterprise hippie in like the, the, by like 1970. Yeah. I mean, the, it's funny, the union stuff, like we, we've had an episode before that talks about music unions and what is good and bad about them because technically Frank's in a weird position because like the musical unions are, are definitely geared toward classical and excluded rock um, but like Frank is kind of both. And yet like the things that he the reason that he is engaging, I think, in the idea of music unions at all is because he is creating orchestral music co- compositions that require an orchestra to play or that he wants them to. And so he spends a lot of this book talking about the huge hassle of uh, hiring orchestras, mostly because union uh, regulations and bureaucracy bureaucracy. Uh, interrupt what should be like a smooth creative process like he also complains about uh you know modern symphony orchestras not being down to play new music like by <laughs> living composers because they're you mm-hmm. know they would prefer to do, do things that are more comfortable and that require less effort which i understand yeah i mean you get a whole orchestra together that i guess that kind of gets you in the shut up and play the hits mentality even ha- if the hits are like 200 years old at that point robin have you played yeah. in like large large format music um, like that not in orchestras but i've i observe things like the i don't know the star wars soundtrack when a symphony orchestra gets together to play that that's going to sell more tickets than you know if you look at a program of an orchestra and it's some like composer you've never heard of um no one's gonna go or like they'll leave for that part <laughs> Right. Yeah, he exactly. He he at one point is complaining that he wanted to hire an orchestra for um a, something that he had composed and unfortunately he's like it was, they were booked all through December with Christmas shit. <laughs> 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 Which is, you know, and yeah. it's funny. I I felt his I felt his agony of like he has a big brain full of a lot of weird musical ideas that require a big group of people to pull off and yet the structures that already exist like it's just really hard to compile your own orchestra i think another thing that informed his kind of like anti-union uh pro-individual thing is that like the governments for example that ran the european orchestras like there was just a lot of red tape he's like this is super inefficient so like Mm -hmm. listen he's not he's also in the book talking about you know communism doesn't work whatever but like he's talking from personal (laughs) experience about how like there are certain things in the way that they are run that is hard to uh, i don't know like that could probably be done easier his, of course, response is like everything should be up to the individual, which I don't necessarily agree Yeah, with. well, I wouldn't mean, um, I, I guess I would dispute him because I, when I was just doing some research before this, I saw his communi- anti-communism quote that was like, co- yeah, communism, uh, what I think about that, uh, any system that, uh, di- that uh, disavows private property, I think that's going to be a fatal flaw. And I was just thinking like, 
well, man, if there's no private property, maybe you would have, there wouldn't be so much red tape about where you can play and with who and with when. Maybe. Uh, yeah. I was and he's made you, the Robin, system it, where like no one can play Zappa music without having to go through all this red tape. Like it, I don't know. <laughs> he's yeah. a bit of a uh-huh. hypocrite in that sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, yeah, that's, that's true. Do you, do you find as when you work in kind of both these realms that there's still that, that kind of hard division between whether something is like rock or pop music or whether it's like classical Yeah, I think that when you're looking for labels or management, you have to kind of be one or the other. It's hard to assert yourself now as just like a maybe Owen Pallett's done that successfully where he's like um, (laughs) managed to make the Brian Eno type um, classical and rock mentality uh, work for him. But I think it's really difficult to, um, I don't know, the other Arcade Fire guys as well. Um, There's more of a a scene for that in Europe than there is in North America. Yep. Yeah. Well, they <laughs> see their, 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 their horizons they the are broader there. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I want to get into, it's funny. He, I forgotten that he had labeled the orchestra stuff, uh, orchestral stupidity, number one, number two, <laughs> uh, cause he keeps getting into these, uh, situations. Oh, he had one also, uh, amazing story about trying to record, uh, an orchestral performance with the London symphony orchestra and they're in a super hard, this is where like my personal, like my like video production, but music production, I think it can be sort of similar. I'm just being like, oh no, like you're in a weird location and you have to like adjust, but then it pisses people off, whatever. Anyway, they're in this weird room that they have to change their, like all of their microphones and like equipment in order to record a good sound. And the way he describes it, he's like recording musicians want their instruments to sound at very least glorious. They've been recording for years and they're used to seeing those gray, heavy, serious looking microphones. Ooh, fuck. Look at this. I'm going to sound bitching in this. Then somebody <laughs> then somebody comes in and puts a plastic dome with a PZM in it over their heads and they go, my tone, my precious tone. I'm going to sound plastic. <laughs> Poor Frank. He just he just wants everyone to, to do their job. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't always it's, happen. It? It's so harsh it. later in the book when he goes, um, I used the Synclavier instead and it sounded just as good. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, that's where he goes off the rails, right? He's he's using the like totally like synth orchestra and even stages a performance where like once it, they realize that they like can't play it the way that he wrote it because he wrote it so difficultly, he's like, don't even worry about it. We'll play it off the. Uh, you pronounced it in a way that I think I, it's Sinclair. I'm pretty sure it could play Sinclair. I trust you. <laughs> um, and he's like, well, no, no, no. We'll just basically have you like you know. Uh, musician sync it so that you're not actually playing it, which is so wild. Here's a theoretical question. Do you think Zappa would have been a big, if he had lived that long, been a big dog guy, digital audio workspace? So like, you know, Logic or, or Ableton or anything where you can have, like, just sit at a desk and program, like, fairly realistically, like a full orchestra worth of shit just in little boxes on a screen in front of you? Yeah. Yeah. That's he wasn't afraid equivalent. of digital technology, right? Like he he talked in too about like recording digitally and like removing hiss and stuff. <laughs> I don't know. I, I shudder to think down. what he'd be doing with like Spotify type stuff. I know Dweezil just started a like an artist's website where you get to keep all the royalties for your stuff or something like that. It's like uh I imagine 
Frank Zappa would be doing the same thing. Totally. I, well, I'm sure, yeah, that would be his his opinion towards uh, uh, streaming. I'm just kind of imagining, like, <laughs> if you could tell him, all right, you sit at this desk, and you ha- you can put, like, I don't know, it doesn't even matter, 10,000 violins on this track uh, without even having to, you know, go and talk to anybody or hire a person or set up a microphone. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I guess I, I have not heard of it as much as a enough about him like what his opinions about like synthesized music versus like real musicians are but i kind of imagine that he would have gone nuts uh in his later years being able to just like produce out of the box yeah but he's still yeah i would agree i feel like he still is interested in the live performance though yeah in the sense that if you know for example staging the thing that the people couldn't play and him wanting to do it anyway like Mm -hmm. He he definitely seems like he can't he can't let that go. Just to loop around to the microphones, I do I very much uh, sympathize with him. Just like ripping his hair out, being like, "You fucking idiot! It's not a better microphone just because it's heavier." Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to sound plastic. Did they, but like, this no, no, one's no, big. We, we this one's big the- and metal, and this one's little plastic. You don't even know that the other one could cost more. <laughs> He also described an incident where uh, they were recording at a place that had like a really good, uh, efficient backstage bar and like the musicians took a break and then like got completely drunk and like could not play their part. I think specifically trumpeters could not play their parts correctly. Drunk trumpeter. Drunk trumpeter. It's Um, He's kind of megalomaniac. Oh, sorry. uh, Because... Oh, no, no, go ahead. I think in this book he says that if you don't build your own guitar pedals, you don't respect the craft. Like it, it's so hypocritical of him to say like a microphone wouldn't sound better because they would, it would, I don't know. Right. Right. God. Yeah. He, I, I would not, that would be tough to actually be in the room with him working on this. That's going to get a, come on, man, for me, if you don't build your own guitar pedals, you don't respect the craft. Come on, man. Yeah. Um, Let somebody buy a guitar pedal. They're guitar pedals. They're like 10 million of them. You can certainly find one that sounds somewhat like what you want. Uh, I want to talk about his, his like theory of music because he just gets into kind of like general, general thoughts. And He's, uh, you know, we touched on this at the beginning, but like definitely not, he's not into pop music. It pretty antagonistic toward the idea of pop music or accepted music. And um, I really like this thing that he wrote where he says, anything can be music, but it doesn't become music until someone wills it to be music and the audience listening to it decides to perceive it as music. Most people can't deal with that abstraction. They say, give me the tune. Do I like this tune? Does it sound like another tune that I like? The more familiar it is, the better I like it. Hear those three notes there? Those are the three notes I can sing along with. I like those notes very, very much. Give me a beat. Not a fancy one. Give me a good beat, something I can dance to. It has to go boom, bap, boom, boom, bap. If it doesn't, I will hate it very, very much. (laughs) Also, I want it right away. And then write me some more songs like that over and over and over again because I'm really into music. (laughs) I thought that was savage. Brutal. Absolutely brutal. I, I feel I feel a little attacked. <laughs> Honestly. Well, look, well, none of us can live up to the standards, the, the musical standards of a, a Zappa. But damn, man, I think I mean, he wrote this book in 88, like clearly coming at a time in pop music that I do think is maybe uniquely rough in terms of we talked before about the like 
uh, the the curve of popular music and how it moves from like extremes, which are exciting, to like the doldrums, which are just like the most boring repeats of what used to be the extremes, and then it repeats. I feel like '88. I'm guessing was a time of the doldrums. Yeah, probably it had to be. Anyway, should we listen? Should we listen to a little more tunage? Yeah, I would like. I would like to immediately undercut that by playing what I think is his best straight pop song. Sure. Just Camarillo Brillo. And then, Robin, would you maybe like to suggest a tune after that? Sure. Any era or like... Okay. Whatever... Whatever you think might be a good uh, accompaniment or contrast to to this, okay. but I, I really just love this song and think it is like a kind of perfect encapsulation of uh, Zappa's pop aesthetic. had that Camarillo Brillo flaming out along ahead I mean her Mendocino Bino by where some bugs had made it red she ruled the toads of these short forests and every newt denied a hoe and every cricket who had chorus I, think, I feel like the percussion, the high percussion, might be like an aerosol can or something. And she could throw a mean tarot that she was someone I should know. I mean, I just think that this song is like it's it's very like pretty and goofy and for even though how how savage that quote you just read was it just shows that it, when he wants to he can sit down and write like a uh, you know like I mean this was probably be like early 70s like a, a top 40 style pop hit among right. as good as like anybody else just like a shadow from the tomb. you know just first course first course bridge structure there's good horns it, in the background I, I, wonder, I love everything is about he just song. like flexing he's like yeah I can I can play shit like this yeah, like yeah. you want you want some of this like I got a little bit of this so I just followed up the steps right past but at the same time telling a Funny and deranged story about hooking up with a, some hippie chick or something. I'm, I'm not sure, quite sure what this uh, song is about, but I enjoy that. Uh, I mean, we, we Do you want to throw on Saint Alfonso's Pancake Breakfast? I, yes. I like in the book what he um, he talks about when he's growing up. His dad having like packets of margarine that you press the red dots in order to make your own at-home margarine. Yes. Um, okay. And that, I think that's the first, that's in the lyrics to this song, like St. Alfonso's Pancake Breakfast, where I stole the margarine. And <laughs> I don't know, if Bob Dylan is writing about like the state of America at the time, I think it's a good contrast to what <laughs> um, lyrically was <laughs> happening. Because he, he is writing from his own perspective, technically. But it's very yeah. strange. No, all, all the uh, all the Zappa lyrics, whether or not, you know, they're too goofy for you or... or or not they do inarguably produce these kind of indelible images of a scene or a person or or an event or or you know they're very they're very evocative yes. of what i'm not sure 
So yeah, but it's it gets the people going. It gets the people going. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Here we are. At St. Alfonso's Pancake Breakfast Where I stole the margarine And wheedled on the bingo cards And blew a latrine. I saw a handsome parish lady Make her entrance like a queen Why she was totally chenille And her old man was a marine As she abused the sausage patty <laughs> I just don't you treat me this is a this is a very perfect like zapping encapsulation because it does like feel like a pop song or a standard pop song but it just like has that thing where every seven seconds something new and crazy is happening throughout the entire song yeah but it's not and abrasive it, it's all cloaked in the like it, it almost feels like super commercial in a weird way yeah. like soothing but then also sick yeah exactly yeah it sounds like you were saying it sounds like childlike music and it I think it's the the Looney Tunes kind of style of this I don't know yep sort of funny yep. oh yeah yeah horns these hyperactive like dual instrumental sol- solos yeah or like that part St. Alfonso this sounds like something you would only hear in a weird classical piece and it's strange that he mm-hmm. put lyrics and drums under it and calls it rock. I don't know. Right. Can we? Yes. Yeah, because you could put it under, put lyrics and drums under it and call it a, uh, call it rock. But what really is it? I can. I want to play one more thing because I saw you. This is one of the videos that you put out. Can you explain what the black plague, the black pages? Oh, <laughs> beyond. I mean, I looked it up when I got it on the on the chart of stuff I had to learn, and it was on this list of like this is one of the most difficult uh, solos. But it when I was learning it, I wasn't thinking of time signatures. I, I had to memorize it like as though you were trying to do an imitation of somebody. Um, mm-hmm. And because if you put it in, I don't know. It sounds more like birds chirping written out as music than it does music. It's like. <laughs> Especially the last minute that, of it is. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, because uh, I just think that that this is a um, a funny uh, comparison to these last two things, which were very very you know kind of goofy and poppy. But the the joke of the black page is that there are so many notes on it mm-hmm. that the page is black. Oh, I see. Oh, I didn't know. Uh, figure. <laughs> ah. So that's. Uh, <laughs> That's what the the gag is here. So I, I would like to play a little bit of this because I feel like that would be a good contrast to the last two things of kind of uh, him at his most most athletic or or kind of uh, you know ornate or complicated. Okay. Uh, and I might need to. Uh, oh, it's number one, I think. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
He loves those marimbas and xylophones. So fun. It's kind of what makes his signature, because if that were a violin, it, this could just be a classical piece, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's like high trebly silly sounds. I think that's what essentially makes it silly, because the violin or the marimba, the xylophone are essentially silly instruments. <laughs> <laughs> As you were saying earlier, that's a reason that xylophones and shit like that are all over Looney Tunes soundtracks, because there's something very essentially uh goofy about them. Mm-hmm. This whole thing's only two minutes long, so I figure we'll just go through it. Yeah. It's crazy the drummer keeping time with everything. So wild. It's a great example of drumming that is both uh, percussive and melodic somehow. Mm Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow wild that's nuts <laughs> but the thing is, is it, it's funny listening to those three back to back and in that progression because they are all so identifiably essentially zappa ish like he mm-hmm. maintains like the, the sound quality the composition quality you can like hear all of his zappa things through each of them even as we go from something that is like a pretty straightforward pop song to something that is like seems to be like a a classical riff with like pop undertones to something that is like pure experimental workout though at the same time they could all appear on the same album you know yeah Mm -hmm. that was that was so nuts (laughs) (laughs) i did i feel like hearing that i'm like just wondering i'm thinking in my head i'm just like you gotta assume that frank zappa must find a lot of pleasure in like writing a piece and hearing it like something that is, comes from his insane brain of being like, yes, these are notes. They're in a structure. Like there is a time signature changes a bunch, but like there, this is, <laughs> there, there are directions. There, there is a, an instruction manual for how to create this insane soundscape. And so like people will do it like that seems to be in some ways like a motivation to like for him to keep making shit. There is an instruction manual and it looks like, a black page. Yeah. It's a it's That's like IKEA furniture for in, for insane people. But I saw it. you were you were playing that I which was I was incredibly impressed. Oh, thanks. I was a wild uh <laughs> I don't know if it was mania, but probably pretty close couple days. Um, it's funny the comments on that when people would say like, oh, great job. Like you listen to this. Like this is, I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm always surprised when people know those songs. Did you, did you have to, did you say in that thread that you had to like transcribe them yourself? Like you had to figure them out uh, from here? Yeah. Like there's Steve Vai has done a bunch of transcriptions, um, but they're not completely correct and uh and so it's is commenting on steve's eye steve vi's uh post being like bye you fucked this up 
Or he'll know if you've, based on the mistakes Steve Vai has in his transcriptions, if you've been going by Steve Vai's. <laughs> so um, you can get an app that slows down the songs at and doesn't lose the pitch. Um, so it's just kind of the same way you'd learn a classical piece, really slowly doing it section by section and then speeding it all up altogether. Wow. Cool. <laughs> Very uh, cool. Yes. I well, I will just say I was impressed. <laughs> oh, thanks. Um much uh, other other musical stuff that I found interesting in in Zappa's book. I really liked he's talking about a little bit more when you're uh rehearsing a composition and then turning it into a live performance of uh even though he has these very specific pieces in the composition if he found for example like an aberration or an error sometimes he would pursue it to its most absurd extreme um in order to like incorporate that into the piece and he called this putting the eyebrows on a part (laughs) which i really liked of the idea of like this part's good but like let's put the eyebrows on it which is which is accentuating the error until it uh yeah, just like dominates like the piece. leaning into like a, a mistake or a weirdness, which then gives it gives it more character, which that is that is what eyebrows are. <laughs> <laughs> Prince did that. Um, that was also, his famous thing that if you play uh, one wrong note, repeat it and it becomes the right note. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, damn. Oh, that's a really good idea. That's a. have never heard that before, but that's exactly the way like the few times that I've just been like digging around like guitar soloing or something. You know, not to say I'm as like good as Prince or anything, but you have the intuitive <laughs> understanding of like if you're trying to like solo along with a song, you play the wrong note. But if you just like bend it really hard and just keep going at it, you're like, yeah, it sounds like I tried to do this. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Just le- lean in, lean into the mess. Um, he also shares some um, kind of shorthand he gives to his live band, which I found interesting of like how to play certain things with certain like attitudes. For example, uh, telling his drummer to play the Quaalude Thunder <laughs> is uh, a drum fill where the guy plays as many notes as he can on all of his thousand tom-toms before he ends with the big crash. <laughs> the Quaalude Thunder. <laughs> the Quaalude Thunder. <laughs> anyway, it, it kind of reminds me of when we did Sun Ra's uh, book and like the idea of like play the play the wind or like play this uh, play an apple. Play the Quaalude Thunder. At least that has a little more concrete definition, I suppose. Weren't you telling me also that like he would would create ornate sets of hand signals for his live band? So like if he wanted something done in a reggae style, he would twirl one uh one Rasta braid, as he said, like one hairlock, like it was a a Rasta braid. And if he wanted it done in ska, he would do two, two because to for double time, double time, (laughs) double time Rasta braids, ska. Imagine that's your boss. You have to do that's that. That's your boss. <laughs> Shit, what? Did he do one braids or two? Oh, fuck. Pick it up, pick it up, pick it up. No, it was one braid. Okay, slow it down. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, any any other, like, songs that we absolutely have to play? Because the, the the rest of the, the chat, I figure, you know, he, he shares some just... Uh, interesting political stuff. I know we talked a little bit about the unions already. Do do we want to talk about the PMRC thing? Uh, we can talk about the PMRC. Uh, it is interesting that the collection of, of the collection of guys, they got to go up there and like testify in Congress in front of how Gore, Tipper Gore uh, yeah. is like that. He was the one guy. And I think that the cover of his book is telling you've got the book in front of you. We've got the book here is that, 
for being such a wild weirdo, he chooses on the cover of his autobiography to be uh, fairly trim cut, still with the iconic mustache and uh, goatee, which is, I would say, top five iconic rock and roll facial hairs. Absolutely. The Frank Zappa mustache and goatee. Yeah. Uh, but he, but he, a fairly clean cut haircut and suit, plain red tie, crisp white shirt. Is this a parody though of like, you know, when men would like write like self-help kind self-help. of books? I think so. But I do think that he also like for as wild and weird as his like stage show is, I do think that there's a part of him that's like, no, I am a professional and I am to be taken seriously. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the energy that he brought to some of those Tipper Gore hearings. I'm not going to play any of that. You can go on YouTube and watch like 30 minutes of Zappa testifying in front of the PMRC. Uh, he's he's great. I mean, if you really want to lean into it, we did a great bonus episode of Chapo Trap House. I was on it as the third mic, but it's mostly Will and Murder Brian, mm-hmm. uh, the great Brian Quimby, talking about um, reading Tipper Gore's book from the time. That bonus is called uh, We Are Sex Podcasters, and it's from around April 10th of last year. Uh, <laughs> so if you want to really dive into this, you can go to that. I have one more song that I really want to play, but it's 10 one minutes long. I'm not really song. sure how I'm going to do it. Does anybody, uh, <laughs> do either of you guys have, have anything else, any other uh, uh, Zappa faves before we wind up here? Can we play Dancing Fool? Can we play a little bit of Dancing Fool? Yes. Which I thought... Um, when I heard this song as a kid, I was like, yeah, cool. And now I'm like, oh, this is definitely making fun of the idea of dance music. (laughs) (laughs) I've been owned. I don't know much about dancing. That's why I got this song. One of my legs is shorter than the other and both of my feet's too long. Of course, not right along with them. I got no natural rhythm, <laughs> but I go dancing every night. Hoping one day I might get it right. I'm a dancing fool. Oh, yeah, they like disco on the floor. It sounds like Weird Al. Yeah. But again, it's just like there's so much going on in here for something that sounds so clean, you know? have to play a ton of this but i just want i just wanted a taste of it i know i'm just as soon as you start listening to this you, you know you could you feel like you could listen to these songs a thousand times and each time find something new or different you know? in the book he really hates on uh he, he brings up several times how stupid people look when they're dancing <laughs> which i'm like give me a break frank i can't control my face oh can you tell the anecdote about beer while i pull this up just because right, this let, is something that really t- tickled me yeah he this is where you know in in typical um memoir fashion he kind of goes a little bit off the rails at the end of the book where he shares everything from uh theories on uh you know internal biological warfare in the united states uh you know creating lsd to control minds or um, the fact that now that he has four kids, there's never any food in the fridge. <laughs> uh, but he, he has... Anyway, these dang kids are always eating my, my hamburgers. But next, let me tell you my theories about the CIA. B- pretty much. He's like, uh, I, my favorite food is fried spaghetti, and I like to eat it in the morning. My kids say it's gross, but I tell them, that's dad food. You'll anyway, be the CIA invented PCP to control the population. Yeah. I, that is one of my favorite uh, tw- tropes from these memoirs is like, the late third third act, like, anyway, here's all my thoughts on stuff. 
like the plots yeah. wrapped up and then they just need to info dump. You need, yeah, you need to, you're like, I'm not going to get another chance to organize my thoughts about like, you know, stuff like this. So like, this is the only chance I have. Um, I didn't write down the beer. Oh, oh yes. Okay. He's, he's, uh, talking about how a uh, beer drinker is unlike any other, um, uh, Types of alcohol. Consumption of beer leads to pseudo-military behavior. Think about it. Winos don't march. Whiskey guys don't march either. Sometimes they write poetry, which is often more horrible, though. Beer drinkers are into things that are sort of like marching, like football. Um, and then later later on, he's like, uh, uh, go ahead and laugh. One day you're going to read about some scientist discovering that hops in conjunction with certain strains of yeast creatures has a mysterious effect on some newly discovered region of the brain, making people want to kill, but only in groups. With whiskey, you might want to murder your girlfriend, but beer makes you want to do it with your buddies watching. It's a buddy beverage for buddy activities. (laughs) (laughs) So good. Um, There's, on the album Apostrophe, there's a the title track apostrophe has this drummer, Jim Gordon on it, um, who had its like psychotic break and murdered his own mothers in jail for life. Um, but played on like good vibrations, Layla, like, (laughs) Oh, that guy, he did the, the Layla Coda. Yeah. The Layla Coda and okay. Unbelievable drummer, but, uh, famously, I'm sure he was messed up on drugs. (laughs) Probably uh, is a good example of what Zap is talking about, but, only knew how to play in 4-4, four, four, so that's why he gets a credit on apostrophe because Zappa would try to give him ideas and he was just like, I can't. Uh, I'm just going to do what I know. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, so I do want to play this clip because it is one of my favorite like live music things of all time, um, which is off uh, Zappa Live in, Zappa in New York, uh, the song Titties and Beer which I love and highly recommend people go seek out. There's a great YouTube video of it purely because it just, I think it shows the joy of a live Zappa show, which is that the majority of the song is a dialogue between Zappa and his drummer who is dressed in a devil mask sure. playing the devil in the song. Um, and I just, and it, the, the conceit of the song is that uh, Zappa's out drinking beers with his big titty girlfriend and then the devil comes along and eats her. And now he's uh, bargaining with the devil to give to give his girlfriend back, uh, and I think it just it's just like a, a four quadrant Zappa song. It's got okay. good musicianship in it, improvisation. He's having fun, uh, he's being funny, and he's a little bit of a it's perv. A, it's a little bit raunchy, uh, but then when it kicks back in, like the musicianship's all there again, and then they segue right into like I maybe I forget what they segue into, but it might be something like the Black Page. Like this concert has everything, so it's like. Imagine watching this and then the band immediately switches gears and plays something like the black the black page. I feel like Zappa may be low key. It's probably not his primary goal, but I'm trying to think of if you were decide to decide what drug you would want to do before a Frank Zappa concert, he'd be like, none of them. None they, of them, none of them the work. Drug. I am the drug. Listen yeah. to me. I am the slime. Yeah. I, I'm a simple person, you know. I have very small desires in life. Titties and beer, you know. <laughs> What? Please no. 
I think that little segment wow. gives it my lord like gives it all it's like we, we witnessed the denouement where he uh tricks the devil into signing a, a fake contract and the devil uh coughs up his girlfriend and then it's uh, quickly segues into like two different types of songs it's like theatricality it's it's everything it's the full spectrum i love that song i'll, I'll try to link this performance in the in the Please episode do. notes that's so beautiful uh, i do i do feel like zappa's main purpose on earth is like you know he's he's got his thoughts about the government about taxes how we shouldn't have to pay them or that they're super complicated um, that dr- drugs are bad but should be legal. But I think the mate, like if if there's anything on earth that I think he did, it was like he's like sex is funny and weird, and we should be talking about it more and like making more jokes about it. And that the actual like sickness in America is like people thinking that talking about sex is bad. Yes. He's like I'm going to talk about it. And I'm going to make it super gross and hilarious, and people did not mm-hmm. like that people like Tipper. He's the main example that gets brought up of someone who would be canceled if he were still around. And it is a, the weird kind of exception maybe to cancel culture rules. I wonder what it would be like if he were still around. I mean, he was, I was doing a little research today and he was in blackface on an album cover and that would okay. definitely well, get you canceled. Good. Yeah. Okay, uh, that's and good. he, he addresses his like, cause he's, you know, been accused of being a misogynist the way he writes about women to which his response is like most of my songs are about stupid men <laughs> so like i don't really know but then he was also like but women could be can be stupid too and i'm like honestly <laughs> agreed i would true. i would i hope he, he never had to to you know deal with the that particular kind of attention because i don't know what would happen with frank zappa <laughs> uh i i guess my my last question before we maybe segue into the end part of this episode yes. uh so, Robin, you were auditioning for the Dweezil Zappa band last year. You obviously enjoy these songs and would like to play them, and Dweezil's still out there doing them. I mean, what what do you kind of see for yourself, for the world, as like the the place and perhaps the future of 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 Zappa in music and culture? Um, I know that's a big one, but yeah, whatever like him specifically, are. or like his musical style. His music, his musical style influences like like wither Zappaismo. <laughs> so I think that now, I'm not sure how long quarantine's going to last, but I think that local music scenes are gone as a result, and that it's now this like world universal. Everybody's putting their music into the Spotify pot and like praying for a playlist, but it's mm-hmm. causing subcultures to build online um a lot of people that i would have never met otherwise are finding my music through the zappa stuff um i think that there are people who enjoy seeing that music live it's not for everybody and it's certainly not like top 40 um or licensable for ads and commercials and so on um but it uh 
<laughs> I don't know what the future holds <laughs> for the Zappa <laughs> style, but I think it's interesting. There's so many classical musicians who are kind of, I think, feel awkward about their classical knowledge and try to learn a rock instrument and are drawn back to Zappa's music because it is closer to music you learn in school than it is to like Chuck, I don't know, blues guitar playing, um, even though both mm-hmm. of them are just as valid. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like, I mean, it, it, in a way it feels like it's it's kind of depressing to say something will get like relegated to cult status. But in another way, I, I think that that's kind of an optimistic uh, point of view because when something gets a cult built around it, then it tends to survive for longer. And I kind of mm-hmm. think that uh, there's something so particular about all these elements, about the the, the sense of humor, the goofiness, the genuine um, and very specific musicianship that combines that like classical aesthetic with the rock aesthetic um, that will keep a like cult of Zappa going for a while, even if um, the only way it's really experienced anymore is through Dweezil mm-hmm. keeping the torch going, uh, which, you know, props to, props to Dweezil. I mean, it, it, it genuinely rocks and is kind of shocking. Do we, talk about the opposite of a fail son. Uh, somebody who can match the wild musicality of their father to like actually helm the band and perform all these songs again, even the, if they like proving that they're not like once in a generation to song. It's like two straight generations of people who are like, Oh yeah, I can, I can just do these wild songs. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I think that, that there will always be people who like come back to it because it's so specific and it'll always activate like certain types of people. I feel like it reminds me of um, like a like New York City Ballet when George Balanchine died. Like you basically now have people who are like specifically keeping the style of that dance alive. I feel like maybe Dweezil can <laughs> kind of keep the torch going and then like the next person to sort of, you know, keep the, the Zappa style going. Maybe it is going to be more of in like a classical tradition. Than yeah. In, you know, I can see that. The, the, the Zappa uh, Institute of... Um, <laughs> uh, what was it? Uh, orchestral stupidity. Orchestral stupidity of of rude Prague. <laughs> yeah, and maybe uh, that's the next step for people using direct like DAW software. Is people will get sick mm. of four four as a chord progression and start messing around with the form rather than like this. I don't know content. Uh, I will buy a cheap, but I will buy a bottle of champagne the next time a song with a, a non four four uh, time signature breaks the top. Uh, let's say twenty of a Billboard chart. Now I need to look and see what what when kind the of last time, time that was. Yeah, I think it's been I think it's been a while. Three four stuff if it like sometimes sometimes makes it in. rarely. Kelly Clarkson, I had a three four song. Oh yeah, <laughs> that song's Avril Lavigne. Break Breakaway. Oh yeah, Avril. Yeah. yeah, it was definitely like a uh, like a alt rock pop thing. Just to have your super dramatic uh, three four song with strings. Well, you know what Willie Nelson says: sad songs and waltzes aren't selling this year. Oh, <laughs> sad songs and, uh, seven, eight rock anthems aren't selling yeah. this year. Mm. Maybe when a 19 year old chick does it, it'll be fine. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we need a Lord, but for pro- Prague, a Lord, a Prague Lord, a Prague, Prague Lord. Billy <laughs> yep. Uh, well, unless you have anything, uh, any other final thoughts about Zappa? Uh, 
No, that's pretty pretty much it. I mean, I I am hesitant to touch on the political stuff. So I was very honored to be asked by you guys to be on this, as well as to have uh, completed that audition last year. So, <laughs> well, I hope that this is a nice little coda to that you know audition that unfortunately couldn't uh, come to fruition. I mean, I, I I think that Molly and I at least will will fold our energy and the energy of the the pod and our listeners into hoping that maybe that can one day still happen. Someday. Sometime. Thank you. I hope so. He sent me a happy new year text the other day and I was like, I'm, I'm posting oh, hey. about my audition. I don't care. So yeah. Uh, well that's, that rocks. Tell Dweezels we said hi. Hey, <laughs> if you ever get to do the band and, uh, Dweezel plays Zappa, Zappa plays Zappa comes through New York. We will definitely we come will out be there, there with bells on. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, but let's move confidently into the end part of this episode. Uh, Robin, thank you so much for coming and talking thank Zappa you. with us. Uh, thank where you for having me. Could people find your stuff or if people were interested in, in learning more about your music or your whatever, uh, where could they uh, see it? I'm on Spotify, Robin Hatch, and then robinhatch.bandcamp.com. Robinhatch.com if you want to read some like official PDFs that I submit to grants and stuff. <laughs> oh, we're going to read all those PDFs. It's great. Nice. <laughs> uh, in the meantime, you can follow me on Twitter at say what again. You can follow me on Twitter <laughs> at Miss Molly Mary. Uh, and together we are at and intro pod, yes. or you can send us an email at and introducing pod at gmail.com. Uh, and as sound on SoundCloud, as always at uh, soundcloud.com slash and dash intro dash pod mm-hmm. or tell a friend tell a friend tell a friend tell your mom uh, go to St. Alfonso's Pancake Breakfast and tell all those gathered there to listen to and introducing but don't do anything weird with the sausage leave the sausage alone but uh, coming up soon we will be starting our maybe not next episode but maybe the episode after that starting our our band could be your life series sometime coming up Uh, So look forward to that in the new year. Mm -hmm. Until then, this has been And Introducing. Introducing.